0: can burn real deep, All my scars will show that emotion bleed. So is death just a place that we go and we die, and life just a test only meant for the wise? Hi there
1: everyone and welcome to Straight from the Source, the podcast from Apsu, the Association of Participating Service Users. I'm your host, Emma Rafferty. In these podcasts we're going to hear from people whose lives have been impacted by drugs and alcohol and from others who work in the field. Thank you so much for joining us. I would like to start by stating that Apsu acknowledges the traditional custodians of this land and pays respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Just a quick warning before we get into the episode that this interview contains general emotional content relating to addiction and substance use, which may be distressing for some individuals. If you want to talk to someone about alcohol and other drug issues, in Australia, you can call Direct Line on 1800 AAA 236. Alternatively, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support 24-7 on 131114. Today, we are speaking to Jenny, who is an Apsu Speakers Bureau member and a multi-talented woman who has done various work in the alcohol and other drugs space. Jenny speaks to us about growing up experiencing family dysfunction in South Africa, about relationship addiction, and about her path of coming to love and accept herself as a lesbian woman. This episode is a powerful exploration of shame, identity, and self-love. Thank you so much for joining us, Jenny. I've wanted to do a podcast with you for ages, so it's actually really exciting to finally have you here. Um, We'll just start with you telling us a little bit about where you see your journey with um alcohol and other drugs beginning.
0: I guess when I first came into recovery, um my understanding of, you know, where my journey began again was when um I was about 10 years old. Um I was at my dad's wedding reception. He got remarried and um you know, th- there was a whole bunch of shots going around the table and I just remember thinking that I really wanted to um I really wanted to be part of the adults, and um, I, I was really keen on just, you know, trying what came around and just snuck a couple of shots in. And my experience was really good with alcohol. And um, I think for me, you know, having that experience at the age of ten um, and having such a positive experience, I kind of rolled on um, with the rest with the rest of it.
1: So you just had a little bit of alcohol?
0: Yeah. So just the first, the first time round. And, um, you know, uh, the only thing that had happened to me majorly before that time was, you know, my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. And, and that was the only thing that I was aware of that may have affected my happy childhood in inverted commas. And, yeah. Um, <sighs> Yeah, but, but then when my dad left the country when I was 11 with my stepmom and my sister and they left me behind with my mom, I think, um, that's when the drinking actually started to, um, get a bit more exaggerated. So why,
1: how did that unfold? Like, why did they do that?
0: I guess, um, so I'm born and bred in South Africa and, um, you know, there's, there was a lot of, um, crime it was like um south africa it kind of goes um through these periods where you know it's it's people people in the country question whether they should be there or not and um uh, my dad um something happened with his work and he was really unhappy and he wanted to to move and the plan around that was you know my mom had custody of me and my sister and um The plan was to kind of move overseas without her actually knowing about it. And it was kind of sneaky, sneaky. And we were. And
1: taking you both? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Is your sister older or younger? Yeah,
0: older than me. And, um, you know, my parents were divorced and initially my sister and I were living with my mom. And then, um, I think my mom and my sister had a bit of conflict. And, um, so my sister went to go and live with my dad. Um, But, but I still went to see him every Wednesday and every second weekend. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, that, this was the whole plan of just getting on a plane because my mom wouldn't really let it happen. Sure. Yeah. And and flying to Germany. So he had fake passports made and they went through Namibia
1: and yeah.
0: And he found about this later. Yeah.
1: So you didn't know the plan. You didn't, you had no idea that any of that was happening.
0: No, I know. I knew. I knew. I knew. And I think that my mom, Sussed it out for me, um, cause I'm not very good at holding secrets. Uh, I, I knew and we, my dad had asked us to kind of keep it at bay and, um, we did up until the last day of school. Um, it was, it was my second last year in primary school. Um, and, um, my, um, that was, this was the day that my stepmom was going to pick me up from school and we were going to literally get going right then and there wow. and
1: how did you feel about that
0: um for me it just like my dad was my hero right. um so I was and I, I feel I felt really conflicted though because you know I love my mom on the one hand and I didn't really want um mm. I didn't want it to happen so much but I didn't want to be I wanted to go and live with my dad because my dad was always he was really fair he was always kind of the, especially between me and my sister, he would just, um, I just liked the way that he that he handled things and, um, you know, he was really smart as well and I, I really saw
1: my life kind of going, going with them. Mm. And so, you went to school and did they just not pick you up? Like, what happened?
0: No, so my mom, I woke up in the morning late. And my mom hadn't woken me up to get ready for school. Um, she got an idea. I think she found out from my stepmom's cousin that this was happening. So she ended up carting me around that whole day to lawyers' offices and stuff. And by that time, so my stepmom had actually gone to pick me up from school, but I wasn't there. And then they left. They
1: left. Um, without me. Wow. Well, you do you remember like? Just thinking, oh no, I'm gonna, they're gonna go without me, I'm gonna miss out, like. Yeah. And were you saying to your mum at that stage, like, please, or was she still not talking to you about it? Like, what was it like?
0: So, she, I said to her, like, it's the last day of school, you know, um, I have to go to school, um, you know, I was trying to give her every reason under the sun, but not, um, that my dad's going overseas, you know, yeah. and I think she said, that she thought it was happening. And I was like, no, don't be silly. We were planning to go to Cape Town on holiday, you know, so I was trying to carry on with the lie.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's massive to have on a little kid's shoulders. And then how? when did you find out that they'd gone without you?
0: Um. So, well, I guess I was hoping, the whole time I hoped that they never left, you know, I was hoping that just because I never went, I was hoping that they'd change the plan. Yeah. Um, and I just, um, you know, I was hoping that they went to Cape Town, but then my dad was out of contact for six months. I never heard from them, you know, and when he did call, I had to, he'd phone and I'd have to phone zero afterwards and put the phone down so that my mom couldn't trace the call because there was an arrest warrant out for him. And, and my sister went onto the Missing Persons program on TV. And, really? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Why? Why? Because of him trying to leave with your sister? Is that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So she, I think I I actually don't know. uh, uh, I think it would be, I don't know if she pressed charges for kidnapping or, you know, but she had full custody. So she had rights and he actually didn't have rights to leave the country without, uh, with either one of us, you know.
1: So they're in Germany at this point.
0: Yeah. So
1: no one actually said to you, he's gone, he's in Germany, blah, blah, blah. Um, So you just all of a sudden knew that you couldn't get hold of him, you weren't having visits anymore, you didn't know where your sister was, but you didn't actually know, like, where they were or when you were going to see them again. Yeah. So when did you first get to speak to them?
0: So six months later my dad gave me a call and um, he just said that, yeah, they had actually gone and they were really sorry. He didn't know. I didn't go to school that day and I explained what had happened and, yeah.
1: And were you just, like, really angry? How did you feel about it? Like, how do you remember processing that?
0: Mm -hmm. It's a good question. So I dissociate a lot, so I can't really – I probably don't – I was – I just remember, you know, I remember when I was – when they left and I remember that the same because then I had the whole school holidays, you know, that whole Christmas yeah. period, um, alone and my mom had started, um, she was just starting a company. So she was pretty much not there a lot of the time. And I just remember feeling this, this deep sense of loneliness. Mm. And I remember feeling really like so much pain around it. Yeah. And I remember like making the decision then that I'd never want to feel this again. And I said, I don't care if I feel – if I don't feel happiness again, but I don't want to feel this pain again. Yeah. And I said, you know, I'd rather just kind of stay up in my head and intellectualize things than than drop down into my body. And that was a conscious decision that I made at 11, you know.
1: Mm. Was there anyone there that was kind of saying to you, I know this must be hard, sweetie, like trying to help you through it or – No,
0: no. You know, I think my mom – I mean, my my mom – she took on a lot. You know, I mean, I think she obviously had her own stuff going on, which, um, you know, maybe maybe people did try to check in with me. But, um, you know, I think if you shut down, you shut down. And mm. I think I was really shut down. And, um, you know, it's, I really adopt my mom's coping strategy around life. Like if life gets really tough, you just get busier. Or, you know, just do stuff and, you know, I, and I guess if you ask really where my addiction started, like that, that month and a half holiday, I just really. Soed into TV and you know Cartoon Network and that was kind of you know and but that and I did uh, I didn't sleep at night because I was an insomniac since I was two years old really so yeah so I would just literally like stay on the couch all day watch Cartoon Network and then you know um, go to sleep at four a.m. if I could or fall asleep on the couch.
1: What was the insomnia caused by anything or?
0: Um, yeah, so this I'd only found out afterwards in recovery. Oh, I don't know. I don't exactly know what was the cause, but I, um, when I started to unpack some of the stuff in recovery a whole bunch of childhood abuse had come up and uh, my dad was my abuser you know but I didn't know any of this when I was younger and the insomnia from when I was two years old it uh, was a kind of type of abuse that he would do and I don't know if that was linked but I really struggled to sleep at night Um and I would often like my whole childhood up until I was about 18 I, I would fall asleep on the couch you know my mom would have to ask me to go to do- to bed because I needed that background noise
1: so do you mean physical emotional or sexual abuse so it
0: was yeah it was physical I think it was physical and emotional um there was definitely we got punished quite harshly physically and um oh I don't know if it's right to kind of talk about it here but he used to lock me in the cupboard until I stopped crying and that was and that happened for a number of years, you know. But and I, you didn't
1: remember that? No.
0: Wow. No, that came to me in a dream after doing some quite intensive thought trauma therapy, you know? And um it yeah. actually came to me in a dream. I dreamt about my partner locking me in our apartment and I I fell asleep for about ten minutes and when I got up and I kind of walked to the room, it just yeah, it just dawned on me and I realized I had to still phone my mom and ask her about it. You know, like, did this happen when I was growing up? Um, because I could only really remember it in a third person. And, um, she confirmed everything that I said and, you know, obviously felt really bad about it.
1: So when that came back, did a whole heap of, because you said that you associated your dad with kind of being like the, the fairer one. So you just like any, of the dark side or any of his behavior, you'd just kind of push that out? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, I pedestalized my father, and I absolutely loved him. Like, he could do no wrong in my eyes, and, um, you know, the, my dream was always to kind of move to Germany um, when I finished school and go and live with him because, yeah. And the abuse just wasn't – you know, I always knew that he'd get angry but mm. I would kind of – I would always feel that it was my fault, you know.
1: Yeah. So were you and your sister close before she went overseas? No, no.
0: We were never really that close. Um We always used to argue about pretty much everything, yeah.
1: So what kind of happened from there? Like you left in South Africa and you're 11 and you've got all this pain um, and you – Like, you know, that's some pretty hectic, numbing behaviors, like all the TV and everything, just, you know, like avoiding, avoiding. But where did that kind of go? Like, where was the next turning point, do you think?
0: So the situation changed in South Africa. When when they left, I changed schools. Uh, we moved into a gated community, um, and so in South Africa, you can't really walk the streets at night, mm. um, it's not really safe, but this, um, community that we moved into, like, all of a sudden, there was this freedom around kind of being able to move around. The school was just on top of the estate, so it wasn't far up, so I could walk to school and, um, and, and pretty much create, um, the person that I wanted to be in a school setting because it was small so I could be as popular as I wanted to be. Um, and that was really, really nice for me. Um, and then I would start, I started drinking probably on the weekends or we'd sneak out at night when my mom wasn't there and, um, you know, drink, drink, um, drink, um, alcohol from the alcohol cabinets or, um, you know, uh, we had, um, a helper who would then, um, he, I'd ask him to go and buy alcohol for me, you know, with my pocket money. So there was always access to, to alcohol. And I thought for me, this was just a whole bunch of fun. And I think I got known as that kind of girl in school, you know, the
1: rebel. Yeah. Yeah. And so you would, would have been like, at what age was that all happening? Like Yeah,
0: 13 years old, somewhere around there. Um, yeah. And because I used to show jump competitively. Um, so I was always involved with horses from the age of eight. And I think that was kind of my saving grace. Um, growing up, I think that's why I'm still standing here today. Um, and I just threw, I guess I just threw all my energy and my, um, kind of my heart into the horses and stuff because, you know, it was kind of the only reprieve amongst what was really going on. Mm. So. And the show jumping, I think it made my mom really happy. And it also, like, on paper, it looked really good. Mm. Um, So I was always honest with my mom about how much I drank. Or not how much I drank, but rather honest with her about the fact that I was drinking. But never really told her how much. And she was always okay with me drinking as long as I was honest.
1: Was but, she a drinker as well?
0: No, she doesn't drink as much. But in my family, it's like... Yeah, it, it's, or, or it's almost like the social norm to be drinking quite a lot. My granddad drank quite a lot. Um, all of my uncles drink a lot of alcohol. And, um, yeah, so she was fine. So long as I didn't get drunk before the night of a show, um, or a horse competition, then
1: it was okay. Like, so she wouldn't be thinking, oh, my 12-year-old's out drinking all the time with her friends. Or... Uh, no, I don't know. Like, it would be not
0: so much like we would go out to clubs and stuff. I only started going out to clubs when I was about 16, mm-hmm. but it was like family get-togethers. Right. So we'd all get together and we'd be waitresses at these things, you know, and um, we'd serve uh Don Pedro's—that's the one. So we would serve everybody Don Pedro's, and then we would sneak the Don Pedro's, you know, because they had older sisters and an yeah. older brother. So yeah. it was a mix of age group, and it's it's okay for some, and then you want to get on board with it.
1: Yeah. So it's not like every night you're kind of you know drinking at home or it looked like you were drinking when other people were drinking at celebrations and social things. But were you drinking a lot more than that, really? Or did she kind of know most of the time that you were drinking?
0: Yeah, so most of the time she knew at the beginning. But then it was like if my mom went away,
1: I'd have friends over and we'd
0: drink more. Or, you know, if my mom was out for the night. And so there was a lot happening. I don't think much was happening during the week unless it was school holidays. Um, but most of it was weekends and it was pretty much every opportunity we got, you know? Yeah.
1: What did you get from drinking and were you struggling to stop? Like, was it just going into the next day and were you just drinking way more than anyone else or were you able to keep it in control?
0: No. So for me, it was always a control thing. And I think like, um, I loved, so when I did start clubbing, I don't know, I was probably about 16 or 15, somewhere around there where we jimmied our IDs and we'd get into clubs and stuff. And I think the thing for me was always to be the provider of alcohol. So I would save up all my pocket money and then I would like, I would drink straw rum 80 percent alcohol you know and I'd have three shots over the night so this was always my plan with one like smirnoff ice or something you know so I'd have the one shot and then the chaser and then I later on I'd have the other and the other and that would only cost me like six dollars at the time you know so that was great and then I could spend the rest of my money on my friends so they would have the most amazing time and then I would do things you know to interact with the DJ and I'd win a champagne or you know but it was always more so about the friends and the party and I would just try to control my drinking to be just drunk enough but not too drunk where I lost control because the amount of shame that I felt if I, you know, went overboard was just, it was too overwhelming.
1: Really? Yeah. What? So there was a couple of times when you drank too much and then you just felt awful afterwards. Yeah.
0: So I used to beat myself up quite a lot in my head. Um, you know, about pretty much yeah. everything, regardless of whether I was drinking or not, you know, about yeah. any, any way that I interacted with, um, you know, if I had an interaction with somebody and I didn't enjoy the way or I would just pick it apart and overanalyze it and then, and then beat myself up about the way that I, that I behaved, you know. I think I still do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: um, okay, so when did it start escalating then? It was
0: from the age of 13 to 16, this was going on. And then when my dad passed away when I was 16 years old, so he had leukemia. It was really quick. I think it was an eight-month period. Was in- he still
1: overseas? Yeah, he
0: was overseas. And by this time, it's a bit all over the place, the story, but my sister had come back. She, she managed to last about two years in Germany before the relationship between my dad and her exploded. Mm. She came back and upon her coming back, I was allowed to then go and see my dad. So long as my sister went with me, you know, so mm-hmm. my sister, because my mom knew I wanted to, I wanted to live there. So she'd have to come with me to kind of bring me back, um, to South Africa. Cause I think she, she had a big fear that I was going to stay.
1: Was your sister kind of against your dad at that stage? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah.
0: And so anyway, I guess like when my dad passed away when I was 16, I had been there probably about three times to see him. I'd go every year to see him. And, um, I think like my idea in my head was I was going to become a professional show jumper and I was going to go. And, and in South Africa, it's not really easy. They've got African horse sickness. So it's not a, a, a great place to be a professional horse rider um the prize money is not as good if you want to do it on a professional basis it's better to do it overseas and like germany is probably one of the best places to do it so in my head it was just move overseas go and live with my dad you know at the while i was still 18 and become a professional show jumper in in germany and when he died when I was 16 years old, like, I mean, I felt the loss of my hero. Yeah. And my hopes and dreams got shattered. And and then there was that kind of that feeling of hopelessness. Also, um I blame my mom and I blame my sister because my mom kept me back when I was 11. Yeah. And then it was also like my sister went. And I was so angry with her that she went and she came back. So she gave away the opportunity. Yeah. And like my mom's got this idea of cancer being a buildup of emotion, you know, so that, and it manifests in your body. She would say that to me. And I always felt that if I had gone over to Germany, that maybe he wouldn't have been so lonely when he passed away and maybe he would have been able to fight it. So I kind of took on a lot of that. I put it onto. In my family, and I also took on responsibility for that as well.
1: So did you maintain a really good relationship with your dad that whole time that he was overseas? Yeah. And when you went over there to see him, was his kind of behavior, was there no, um, like awareness still at that age that you were kind of going, he's so angry or, you know, he's.
0: So when I was, when I was 10, um, I had this massive blowout with my dad and, um, it was, you know, I never threatened to go and live with my mom. That was really my sister's game, you know, and one day, um, you know, because he used to, he used to be quite abusive and, and the one day we had a bit of an argument and I lost my temper and I said, I'm going to go and live with mommy. You know, that was my plan. And he, I think he was so taken aback that it came out of my mouth that he said, fine, and he threw all of my stuff into garbage bags, you know, and he called my mom to come and pick me up, and, you know, kind of put me in the car, and then didn't talk to me again, and um, I didn't speak to him for three months, and, you know, I think in that period of time, I learned how to control my temper, and I went back into I phoned him from my grand's house the one day. I remember it really vividly. And I said to him, Look, I'm really sorry. And I think all that I learned to do in that time was conform or, you know, repress any kind of emotion. And I learned to get such a good control over it that when I went back, we never had another fight again. Mm. You know? And but I think I was always very much walking on Mm. eggshells around him you know in terms of I would never put a foot wrong and that way he wouldn't get angry
1: but you didn't feel like that at the time you didn't kind of come back and go oh I can relax here like it's tiring being over there
0: not at all Mm. yeah not at all because you know as many bad things as there were well when I fit into that mold There was no bad experiences. Mm. There was no bad experiences. And there was actually quite a lot of fun because he was really smart. He, he loved having fun, you know, like he enjoyed go karting and going to theme parks. And like, you know, it was, it was kind of this world of difference from my mom who was way more serious and responsible. And, you know, I just, yeah, I, I
1: always enjoyed the experiences. And so when he passed away, um, and you said that you kind of blamed your mum and your sister. how did you react? like did you start drinking and um dabbling in other things, or how did it kind of affect you?
0: So I guess this was when I was sixteen, so it was kind of midway through my um midway through my second last year in school. And then in the last year of school, I guess I just started to pick and choose what subjects I wanted to do or I didn't really, I think I started to act out without actually realizing it, you know, so I started, I felt quite sad about it when I went to school the next year, my sister had done so well in school a year before and, um, you know, when we went to go and see my dad, the last time we saw him, we knew he was really unwell, we knew he had to go in for a transplant and my sister, um, we could only go for a week because my sister was writing her final exams. So um, we had to cut it short. And I think I was really angry with her for yeah. that. because, And her excuse was the exams, you know. And then the next year, every single time a teacher would come up to me and have a conversation about how well my sister did, I felt really resentful about that. So I started to avoid school. Um, and you know, just try to just go horse riding the whole time and stuff. And I guess my drinking was probably still on par It was probably just a slow progression with my drinking and, um, you know, all the way through until I, um, until right at the end of my final year of school and, um, they didn't want to let me write the exams because I had missed so much school and, um, I guess my first thing was I tried to commit suicide. Um I overdosed on medica- medication from the medicine cabinet and um and then I went to see a psychologist that's when my mom got me into see a psychologist who then wrote a letter to the school to allow me to write the exams.
1: So what triggered that suicide attempt?
0: I think it was just being accountable. I think for for so long I had kind of gotten away with murder, you know, I'd I'd nights I had not really been called since the age of 11 all the way through until, um you know, until now I was, you know, just about to turn 17 or sorry, just about to turn 18 or 17 years old. And I hadn't really been held accountable for anything, you know, sneaking out or anything I mm. could have, I was pretty much just doing whatever I wanted to. And when I was called on that, and also the fear of not being allowed to write the exams, um I just got scared. Mm. And, and, um, you know, I overdosed and it was, um, I don't think I was really serious about it. I mean, it was very obvious that I would taken pills and my mom then kind of carried me off to hospital and they just did charcoal. and didn't even have to get my stomach pumped because it hadn't been in my system for that long. Um, yeah, but, and for me, it, my only understanding of that was I just felt guilt around my, my behavior and that I'd been caught out for it. Mm.
1: And then it, so it worked. They let you sit the exams, like your yeah. mom's letter. Yeah.
0: yeah. They let me sit the exams. Um, I didn't do badly. Um, and then what happened as a result of like, I had started smoking quite heavily cigarettes. Um, and I guess in my last year of school, there was only one or two times that pots came into it. So there, um, I think, and it, we didn't even smoke it. It was edible, you know, and it was with like, my stepsister, because my mom was now remarried, so it was she's much older than me, and I kind of had that experience with it. But because weed comes up in your system and it stays in your system for so long, and because I was I was riding, I was show jumping at a really high level, that any time I would compete and win, I would get tested. So I couldn't actually afford to do anything else other than than drink alcohol you know um but then when when I finished school um and I I moved out on my own that's that's when it all started to kind of kick off um because I I was out of my mom's house I was free to do whatever I wanted to do um and I was happy to be away from her and, and and that's kind of yeah where it all really started
1: So what did that look like? Like what, when you say it all started, what started?
0: So I got a job straight away. I asked them at the Pilates studio that I was a client at if I could be a receptionist. Um, and they, Gave me a job as an instructor and offered to train me. So I earned quite a bit of money then. And um, I had a uni fund that I wasn't going to use because I wanted to do my gap year. So in that period of time of living on my own or living with a housemate, but outside of my mom's house, we started drinking started drinking i mean drinking is such a big culture in south Mm. africa like it is in australia so everybody everybody that knew me knew that i drank and that wasn't an issue amongst all of my good friends throughout school and even with at the pilates studio you know everybody knew that i was a drinker um but then um i met somebody when i was still in school and i kind of saw him outside of school and he smoked quite a bit of weed and um and I just started smoking it. And I, I thought it was a laugh. It was so much fun, you know, and it was just um we used to game, you know. We used to have a PlayStation 2 and we used to just smoke a whole bunch of weed and game. And it wouldn't actually affect my work because it didn't matter if I gained all the way through until 5 a.m., you know, that I would, you know, get up, go to work, work be, you know, spunky and an 18-year-old that's got all the energy in the world and then come back and smoke some pot, you know. I would never smoke pot before I taught Pilates so because I would become too paranoid. So I always would do it afterwards, and I thought that that would be okay, you know. Yeah. And um, I think also, um, you know, uh, probably just before my 18th birthday, um, I had my first experience with a woman as well. And that was that was probably adding to it. I know that kind of jumped all over the place, but that was it's probably pretty important
1: <laughs> information. but, but yeah. so ha- okay, so how did that happen like had you like did you know that's something that you wanted to do like how did that kind of happen
0: so when I was sixteen, oh I think I knew I think I knew when I was really young you know I was um often very attracted to women, and I always thought that it was admiration you know i just i thought there was a difference and then when i was 16 years old i started to play with the idea that maybe i could possibly be you know maybe but
1: i didn't know was was there other people um like I don't know what it was like in South Africa at that time, but was there people in the media? Was there friends? Like, was it a thing that was around you when you kind of knew, well, that's okay, you know, if I like women, other people like women, that's okay, or what did it feel like?
0: So so there was The L Word, which is a TV show. It's for like the original lesbian TV show and stuff, and I used to have to watch it and make sure that none of the family was around. You know, so that I could watch it late at nights or whatever. I'd have to record it. So, you know, because it was in my family, it was taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, like my mom, yeah, my mom made a, a remark about kind of, you know, one, if, if I or my sister ever came home with a woman, she didn't know what she'd do. And she said it in front of the whole family. And it, so it was gay men were accepted, but not gay women. Wow. So, um, you know, so there was that. And then I had the L word happening as well, which I was kind of sneaking around to kind of see. And I guess for me it was just like I really wanted to try it, but I didn't want to out myself before I tried it because I wanted to know if it was a thing or not, you know. Yeah. And I dated throughout school. I dated a lot of boys, you know. And what
1: did that feel like? Like did you think – I don't seem to be attracted to them in the way that my friends are or...
0: No, so I thought I haven't met the right guy yet, you know. So I would sit with the guy in the movies and he'd rub my arm and sometimes I'd get irritated, you know, and then it was like I'd kiss these guys and my friends would all talk about the butterflies and I would just be like, maybe I just haven't met the right guy yet. Mm. So I was just waiting for Mr. Right to come along, you know, and that was really my understanding of it. And I think, you know, like... I was attracted to one or two of my friends, but I was never going to act on it. Or maybe, you know, on a drunken night, we'd hook up or, you know, but it was never really spoken about afterwards. And um, and then when I was 18 years old or just before my 18th birthday, and I met somebody who I'd been talking to for ages. We had kind of become friends before. She was very feminine, which was important for me um, as well. And I guess we started talking and um, and then – eventually and I ended up at a house party with her, and we ended up kissing and I knew then right then exactly what my friends were talking about the butterflies in the in the stomach and you know it's almost like I experienced attraction for the first time that I'd never experienced before and i oh, yeah. yeah, and the penny dropped for me, and there's yeah it's never been there was no looking back that I knew right then and there that this was the case
1: was there ever um male partners that you had that you thought you could have been with long term or was it always just like hard work and you know something that you felt like you were forcing yourself to do
0: yeah so my last well my last partner was I was with him when I was 18 um I never lasted in male relationships for very long but I think like I think part of me so much wanted it to be yeah, because I knew my family would accept me then, you know, so I was kind of hoping and praying. And I thought if anybody can do it, it's this guy. And we tried to, you know, we tried to have sex together. And it was just, it was like, it was like, it wasn't a bad experience. But it, I mean, it stopped pretty quickly, because it was just not, you know, I had to get really drunk to do it. I had to get really, really drunk to do it because it was just not comfortable for me. But then also to be with women, I had to be, I had to get really drunk to do it as well. Yeah. Because it was so conflicting as to what I'd been brought up with, you know.
1: And so you, you didn't know that though, until you'd first been with a woman and you were 18 at that stage?
0: Yeah. So just, just before, but yeah, like only a few days before my 18th
1: birthday. And had you told anyone up to that point? No. So just totally within your it was a just a secret that you had to hold yeah yeah that feels like it would be really heavy and then after you were with her were you excited to tell other people or what was it like
0: no i was actually she was pretty full-on like she's a beautiful girl and um but she wanted a relationship and i did not know what i wanted you know she wanted to be with me and then she was with me in public and that was just too much and it was too overwhelming. So I was, I just went into shame around it. And, mm. um, you know, the relationship lasted, I think a month or, a, you know, a month, between a month or three months. And and I guess like, yeah, I just didn't know what to, I didn't know what to do with it. It ended up, yeah, the relationship ended up breaking up because I couldn't actually handle the feelings that came up with it. Yeah. And I couldn't be drunk the whole time, you know, because I had to, like, drink or I had to self-medicate, you know, the day after to start to feel okay about what had happened the night before. And nobody in, in my friendship circles and stuff was gay. Mm-hmm. And because lesbian women, you know, because... I don't know, because I guess maybe that was my mom's stereotype, but because there was, you know, so much, there was such a negative view on lesbian women, it was like, even if I knew a lesbian woman, I would steer clear of them, you know, because I had this internalized
1: homophobia. Why do you think there was such negativity, particularly towards lesbian women?
0: Because... I judged them. I judged them and I was like, oh, you know, if you're going to, you know, you dress like a man or you, you know, I had this kind of, I think an adopted kind of belief system. And it was just, um, and I think for me, it was, they represented so much of, you know, kind of what I wanted to be like, but I, I was, But so much so that if I steered clear from the stereotypical lesbian that people wouldn't believe that I was lesbian, you know, so then it would be okay. If I just didn't fit into that stereotype, then maybe I would be accepted as well, you know, even though I wasn't really out yet. But why
1: do you think everyone else – like? It, that you say that your mom and your family, they seemed okay with gay men, but lesbian women in particular, they were really negative. Like, why do you think that was? It's
0: a good question. It's a good question. And so, like, even today, like, it's taken me since then, since 18, all the way up, I think I've started to gain acceptance around my sexuality when I was 30, 31. And only now around my... um gender identity you know or it's not even gender identity but my gender expression rather so yeah so my gender expression is more masculine and i like to dress more masculine sometimes and i love to wear a suit i love wearing a suit and you know even now at i'm 32 years old now to have the conversation with my mom you know who to i could clearly tell that she had withdrawn by seeing a photo of me on Facebook in a suit, you know. It's still a thing. Mm. And she acknowledges mm. the fact that she's got stuff around it, you know. And we, we've spoken about it and, you know, I've asked her to please kind of meet me there. And I'm very lucky that through this journey, I've managed to be able to learn how to communicate with my mom properly. Mm. And so she she can move into acceptance just a little bit easier, whereas before that would have caused me to run mm. for the the heels you know
1: so where was the kind of next turning points from you at that stage like what were the big turning points um you know kind of the lowest point of you abusing substances and when you started to turn things around
0: so so from the age of 18 all the way through until 28 that was my using career and um you know it's um, it, just before my 90th birthday, I got into amphetamines. Um, you know, and, um, and then it was really like, I think my drug use was really dependent on the relationship that I was in. Mm. So I had an experience in, um, the, my next experience with using amphetamines, um, on a regular basis with a woman and, and then kind of, all of the savings that I had saved up for uni and stuff, all of that kind of being gone. Um, and then the women and the friendship group that it was associated with that then left. And, and then, you know, with my tail between my legs approaching my mom and saying that I can start my life over again, I got involved with a woman who was anti-drugs. So then I was just drinking. And I drank for two years and the relationship, all my relationships are really volatile. And, um, you know, after that relationship, I then ended up, um, in ICU for a week as so I tried to overdose again. And, and then that ended me up in treatment. And that was kind of my first experience with treatment and um, you know I had this really negative attitude towards treatment because um, they put me in a dual diagnostic unit it was I was in there specifically for they diagnosed me with borderline and depression and um, and then they were medicating me but at the same time we were in a group and after the group I don't know if it was 12 step based, but you know people started holding hands and saying the Lord's Prayer and I was like yeah I'm like this is crazy it's a cult I'm out of here I can't actually do this and you know managed to persuade my mom that they were throwing drugs over the fence and that it was safer for me to be out of there than it was to be in and you know so there so that was kind of leaving that being on antidepressants and then I got on a plane and tried to immigrate but yeah I tried to move to Perth try to live with my aunts, and like my negative attitude just followed me, you Mm. know, managed to last a couple of months in Perth and, um, you know, alcohol is too expensive in Australia. The trains didn't run till late enough. I couldn't afford a taxi. You know, I wasn't prepared to work. I was just wanting to live free and bum and, um, ended up back in South Africa with my original partner and, um, and then we broke up after a month and because now I wasn't with the anti-drug girl anymore, I could use the way that I wanted to use. And um, this pretty much, this cycle then carries on, you know, for um, until I eventually found crystal meth or, um, and, um, and then it was probably my first intervention. Um, and, you know, I guess like in those years that, That passed. I think the thing that kind of prolonged it for me was the, the fact that every single time I would stop using, I would believe that, um, I can stop whenever I want to stop, you know, because I'd stop using, I'd stop drinking and then because I was at one stage with somebody who used to drink heavily. So I stopped drinking for a year and a half, but I was using amphetamines. I was using all different kinds of amphetamines and then you know, that wasn't really working for me. Then I started using pills and then, you know, that wasn't working. So I would stop that and then use, you know, um, I, I would use kind of weed or, um, I'd use different combinations of different things to achieve. A different results and every single time one kind of the bottom would fall out I would say okay I'm stopping that and, and and then do something else and this kind of gave me that false confidence that I had it under control you know yeah um and then yeah it was basically the whole time I was a workaholic as well I was working two jobs um to support it and just had nothing to show for it and and then, um, you know, I ended up moving state as well. And uh best friend did an intervention on me when I Is had... Is this a, when
1: you're in Australia? No. No, still... Yeah, still in South, South, South. yeah yep.
0: still in South Africa. And once I had moved state again, I thought then crystal meth was the issue. And I stopped using, but I was still drinking red wine. I was smoking pots And, you know, then it just carried on. And I guess like my last... The last moment... Or my last kind of stint with using was a year before I stopped. So a year before I turned, a year before I was 28. So 27 years old. And I met my partner who's an Australian. And, um, she, I was her dealer. I was her best friend for three years before, you know, I would deal her cocaine. And, um, you know, my life was really now kind of, I was, back living with my mom again you know every, everything had kind of unraveled and um she had a lot of money and I was like wonderful this is great so I went to go and kind of you know deal for her we ended up getting together and eventually the cocaine because you know it starts to eat through your expenses pretty quickly mm-hmm. or through your money pretty quickly um, it ended up in crystal meth again. And then the wheels really came off. And, and this was probably the time where I'd lost every job. I had absolutely nothing to my name. I had so much money that I could use as much as I wanted to, which was really starting to kind of freak me out. I got, you know, it's, it's what everybody kind of talks about with the paranoia and all of that stuff that happens as well. Um, I'd sold my car. Um, we eventually, um, you know, eventually kind of run so low on money that we just started selling everything. Everything. And and our plan was then to jump on a plane, and and move to Melbourne, and you know just try it, try it out here. But we didn't actually have a cent to do that. And every single thing that we sold, the money would then go back into mm. to drugs. And I guess like the moment for me was like, I think one of my friends started stealing from me, which was not something that I experienced before. Like I never experienced homelessness or anything, but we were in a place and things were going really weird and crazy. And it was just, um, you know, it was just really out of whack. And I started to acknowledge the fact that, you know, I needed to stop using meth again. And, um, you know, I kind of motioned this to her to say, like, I think we need a stop. And, um, you know, I went to sleep for three days. And while I was sleeping, all of this weird stuff went on behind the scenes. And anyway, we managed to get to this organic farm in in a, a town called Nelspreit and and try to self-rehabilitate because I was still convinced I could do it on my own, you know. And with this... We were in a really volatile relationship, you know. Um, I wasn't using amphetamines anymore, but I was still drinking and I was still using pot. And I started to see a transpersonal psychologist. And this for me was, this was the biggest turning point now. Because after all of these years and everything that happened, um, I started to see this woman and she said to me, like, you know, while we're doing the work, no more than four units of alcohol a day and no smoking weed and i said yeah it's no problem but i couldn't do it and i didn't didn't realize that you know um i i would drink and i would keep drinking and then i would try to stop it at 4 but i couldn't you know and i'd blame maybe an argument that we were having mm. or my partner at the time would come home with weed and she'd smoke it and i'd get angry with her because i'd end up smoking with her so and then, then i'd blame her for that as well And, um, you know, um, we, I went in one day, um, and kind of tried to, um, go in for a couples counseling session with her and we had had such a blowout, um, uh, like in the middle of the road in Nelspray where it's so unsafe to kind of have an interaction like that and we're really lucky to be alive Mm -hmm. and she ended up dropping me at the psychologist's office and I went upstairs and and that was the moment for me I just broke down because I was I felt so much guilt and shame I felt shame around the fact that she was supposed to be in a session with me and she wasn't and I just kind of poured out my soul to this woman and I said look I don't know what to do anymore. Um, You know, I don't have a cent to my name. I've sold everything that I own. My family won't speak to me. My mom's put rehab on the table. Um I'm supposed to move to Australia with my partner. And we don't have money for a ticket. And we can't even make it down the road without having an explosive argument. So, uh, you know, and I just felt like I was between a rock and hard place with nowhere to go. And um she just said to me, you know, maybe it's time to hit the reset button and you know do what your mom suggested and and try rehab and and I did I kind of took on board what she said um it was um I needed her support with the boundaries around my partner to try to help facilitate that because I didn't know how to communicate it. And she supported me to do that. And we did a five-day road trip back to Cape Town, somehow made it there without losing our minds, you know. Um, but I was still driving there to the rehab to prove that um, I didn't have a problem, Yeah, that, I, that I'm not, not an addict, you know. I, I was going there to prove to my mom. But I didn't have a problem.
1: Yeah. And then while you were in there, did you change your mind?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I sat in a circle and everybody identified as an addict. And I did because everybody was identifying as an addict. And then I think the next group session was the next day. And um people started talking about alcohol and um about the fact that, you know, blackout drinking isn't normal. And I thought. What do you mean blackout mm-hmm. drinking is a normal? Isn't there, is there another way to drink? You know, um, I'd never, I'd never not blackout drank. And if I didn't blackout drank, I had used a lot of drugs not to, mm. to blackout drink. And, and that was my thing. And I guess that's when the penny dropped for me, you know, and I, I actually realized in that moment that I'd always stopped using one thing at a time, but I never stopped everything at the same time. And that actually, if I wanted to be mm. clean and, you know, sober that, that, the way to do that was um, by not picking up a drink because the moment I have a drink, I don't actually like the feeling of being drunk. It was like when I was, you know, 16, going out to a club, ordering three shooters, like I didn't want to be drunk. I just wanted to have some kind of social confidence or something, you know? And so for me, it was just that realization of if I pick up a drink, I'm going to use it's a guarantee, so I can't drink for the rest of my life, you know.
1: Mm. And did you, have you not since then?
0: No. So it's now, oh, it's over four and a half years. Um, Yeah, and I have no intention to. There's been a couple of times where it's, you know, I've been a bit uh triggered, like a horse. When I came to Australia, I started working with horses again, and a horse, you know, we had to leave a really sick horse that we couldn't rescue, and like, boss kind of thrusted a beer in my face and he didn't know that I was an alcoholic and um I just I I said no but that was tempting you know and and there was another time it was a hot day and that was just a trigger and I walked past the brewery and I thought oh a beer would be a nice thing but it's a fleeting thought you know and it's um and it's uh yeah but that's been a lot of work I think to get me to that to that point you know.
1: So you did end up moving to Australia with that partner?
0: Yeah, so when the the rehab that I did was only a 21-day program because that's all the medical aid would really cover. And um somehow, some way, I managed to persuade my mom to lend me the money. I drew up a budget for her and I said to her, look, a month's worth of expenses. And she said, I don't care if you've got to go there and get this girl out of your system to come back. But I only had a month's worth of expenses and I had a month to try to make it work, you know, and I moved to, I moved to Australia. Um, we lived together for the first month.
1: Was she sober too?
0: She got sober or apparently she got sober. I think, she, I think she did. I don't know how much of it is actually true, but she, she said she did. And she started to attend 12 step meetings as well. Um, and in the first month, you know, I did, I did loads of 12 step meetings, um, some with her as well. Um, And we started on this kind of recovery journey together. But that first month of living with her, kind of moving here, living with her, it was just as volatile as it was when we were in South Africa. And I guess for me, I always thought that, you know, the day that I put down drugs and alcohol – You know that I that I'm in recovery now. That everything would get better, Mm. and it didn't. It was just you know it was the same, and it was the same if not worse because now I had to deal with social anxiety. I still had debt to my mom. You know, I'm starting over again, and I put myself in a foreign country where I don't have (laughs) any social supports. You know, so yeah, it was tough.
1: And so, what kind of things aside from twelve step meetings? do you rely on now and then to kind of keep you going? Like what have been the the most important things in your kind of like healing?
0: The horses was really helpful. Like moving out to the country and working with horses was really helpful for me mm. to begin with, with doing 12-step. And then after the relationship breakup, I started to feel quite suicidal again. And this was the first time in, I don't know, 10 years, you know, or somewhere around that and um, I managed to last six months like that in a lot of pain mm. after the relationship breakup so I was about 18 months in recovery now and people had mentioned SLA to me so it's sex and love addicts mm. anonymous and Because I was a workaholic, I always had an excuse that I couldn't make it. And one day I was, it was a public holiday and I was in town and I thought, I'll just try and go into the meeting. And I went in and it was like a huge weight had been lifted off of my shoulders that I could start to share about this relationship stuff. And what I realized then is that actually since I came out or since the age of 18, I hadn't been single for longer than three days, you know consecutively wow. yeah all all the way through I always had a relationship on the go and I always had another relationship set up so I got to start addressing that in in SLA and um, as I started to address that you know the feelings of kind of suicide started you know become more pronounced and somebody gave me this um, psychotherapist's um, number and she's an addiction specialist who specializes in trauma as well I didn't believe that I needed any I didn't need psychology you know I thought I'd been to so many psychologists throughout my life but I was just that desperate one day that I gave her a call and um I started to work with her and she does this technique called brain spotting and it is like probably the most interesting thing I've ever ever done because it's not talk therapy you know it's just like a where you're looking out on a spot that you're looking out on is directly relative to the spot that you're looking into in your brain, you know, you can look up the theory behind it, but it was brilliant because then I'd sit and I'd, you know, I'd go in for these sessions and all of a sudden stuff started to come up. And it's like I spoke about in my dream, with the, with the trauma for my childhood and I was able to, you know, kind of start to work, work through that stuff. And, um, you know, for the first time since I was 11, I could drop from that head, that intellectualizing, and I could drop down into my body again and mm-hmm. start to feel. Like she used to ask me how I feel, and I used to have to draw it because I couldn't really connect to it in, yeah. in my body, you know. Um And, yeah, so I did work with her for probably a year, um, intensively for probably about nine months. And then from there onwards, uh, you know, there's another fellowship, adult children of alcoholics or dysfunctional families. That was really great, um, to, to deal with the, you know, because my dad was abusive, like, um, I have issues with authority figures and I take that into the workplace, you know, yeah. or angry people. So if somebody has a really angry tone, you know, I had to learn how to, deal with that and I was having these traumatic responses or these these body responses to something that's actually from ages ago mm. so I started to work through that and unpack it and I guess like nowadays it's just about you know sl- is a lot about top lines and about creating that life worth staying sober for you know so it was very much like first started off with just take a bath and walks on the beach, you know, and now it's rock climbing and, you know, doing things that I love doing and then I'll meet somebody in the process of doing that instead of trying to meet somebody and mold myself to be with yeah. the person that I, that you know, and be the person that they think, that I think they need me to be. Um, so that's been really helpful and, um, you know, nowadays like I do Reiki, um, I do some Reiki sessions which has been helpful to shift my shame and the anxiety and uh kahuna massage, which is specifically around the body work. I do some yoga, which is like to open the hips to release the trauma from the hips. That's a huge thing. I'll just start crying for no reason, which is great because I haven't really cried my whole life, you know. So yeah, there's lots of there's lots of different things that I've kind of picked up along the way, but everything is a tool. Like I think yeah. twelve step is a tool in my toolbox.
1: Yeah. You
0: know, it's not the only thing and and it's about kind of getting as many resources as possible to to um you know help if 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 I'm down you know because like two weeks ago I was I was low I was really low and it may be seasonal depression because it's winter I don't know what it is you know but I was really low and I didn't really know how to deal with things and I just kind of used the tools that I picked up along the way from every different 12-step and, you know, every other thing. And eventually, I've you know, I'm back on the wagon. And I think life is, you know, mm. it's like that. It ebbs and flows and sometimes I'm going to be down and that's okay. It's just how I manage it, you know.
1: Totally. Yeah, that's pretty much how I see it as well. So... Out of all of the kind of learning um, and all of the different things that you've been through, if someone is relating to your story, what is the kind of key thing that you would want them to hear?
0: I think, like, alcohol. Alcohol for me is definitely it was um, my inhibitions go with alcohol. So I guess the thing is, like, you know, one drug – and another drug are not different. That's all the same thing. It's all a coping strategy. So, so relationships. And I guess also like around the, um, kind of that self-love and self-acceptance around, especially sexuality, like it's actually, it's okay. Um, you know, to, um, I think like authenticity for me was really hard to come to. Um, and I was always worried, I think from the abandonment that happened in my childhood, I was always worried that I was going to lose all my friends being who I wanted to be, but it's actually the best gift because being who I am takes very little effort. And it's, um, I think the people around me who align with that will stay and the people who don't will fall away, you know, and there was a, point where it was kind of a little bit lonely for me you know when I was kind of finding who I am and wearing a suit and you know that kind of stuff but I stayed in that and I you know and I had the supports and I gained the support to kind of sit in that space that now the people that are in my life are you know it's unconditional love unconditional love they love me for exactly who I am Um, you know Without me needing to be something, something else.
1: Mm. Yeah, which is, I suppose, what everyone wants, really. So do you feel like um, there's anything that I haven't asked you about that's important?
0: Like with the body work, because they say trauma is stored in the body, you know, this is one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. I can't always sit in that space. So sometimes like I'll need to self-care after self-caring. If I go in for an intensive massage, you know, like a kahuna massage, or if I go in for that really um, intense yoga and, you know, open up things, like I may be crying for a few days afterwards, you know, and I've got to Mm. just be gentle on myself around that stuff. I, I, one of the biggest things that I learned is to kind of slow down. I was doing everything really hard. And, you know, I guess I've just kind of reined it in a little. And, you know, now it's just one thing at a time and just having that kind of acceptance and that gentleness around, yeah. around, you know, the fact that if I'm going to go and do this work, it's probably going to bring a lot of hard stuff up. And I've got to just, just be able to kind of nurture myself through that. Mm. Because I don't think you become an addict just because life is dandy, you know?
1: <laughs> and it's good that you kind of, um, you know, talked about the fact that you still have ups and downs and periods where you struggle and because it's not something for a lot of people that just goes away. So yeah, is there, if there's nothing else that you want to add, I would just ask you a couple of, um, these like fun quick questions um, that you meant to just say whatever comes to your mind first. Is that cool?
0: Okay, cool. Okay. I'll try not to overanalyze.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're ready for another half an hour. Okay, so your favorite food?
0: It's a hard one. Um, my favorite food is probably faux chicken KFC rounder.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, your spirit animal?
0: That's mm, a horse, definitely.
1: Yeah. Uh, your favorite book?
0: I love, and maybe it's very self-helpy, but I love Claudia Black. She writes a book. Oh, now I can't remember the book name. I'll have to look it up. It's, um, it's the most amazing book. It's changed, it changed my life. It is like how to learn to say no
1: in the world kind of thing, you know? Oh, that sounds good. Yeah.
0: Claudia Black. Okay.
1: So if we look it up, I'll add it on the show notes. Yeah, I'll add it cool. down the bottom. Um, okay. What's your favorite TV show? I love friends
0: just classic
1: what's your favorite thing to do in your leisure time
0: um i love rock climbing i,
1: I knew you were going to say that um what are you learning about at the moment
0: so different um therapy models um, i'm very interested in um yeah this new thing that they call inquiry i'm just i'm just having a little a little peek into that
1: okay um and your favorite quality about yourself
0: Um, my humour.
1: Hmm, I like that. Okay, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this interview. Thank
0: you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure.
1: Straight from the Source is the voice of the Association of Participating Service Users, or APSU, which is a service of the Self-Help Addiction Resource Centre, or SHARC. APSU is a Victorian consumer representative body which believes that the voice of the people impacted by drugs and alcohol is important and should be heard. In our podcast, we look at a range of different issues relevant to those impacted by drug and alcohol use from varying perspectives and talk real, honest stories straight from the source. We will have more guests and more stories coming to you monthly. Podcast episodes and further information on Apsu can be accessed through the Apsu webpage, www.apsuonline.org.au through our Facebook page, Apsu Shark, and soon through iTunes and other podcasts. Music is from Jimmy Loops. His Facebook is Big Jimmy Loops, and his YouTube is Mr. Jimmy Loops. Just a reminder that the views expressed by our guests are not necessarily reflective of Apsu and Shark.
0: And where do we go? That's the question. Does somebody know if there's any other way if i beyond the it's
1: other day that I'm beyond repair. Oh no, daddy heated, oh, body healing, body holy, hey.
0: Don't know where to go, don't know if I want redemption.